So tonight is, uh, we're gonna continue in our John series and him is life. So we're gonna start, we're gonna be in John 6, verses one through 21. John 6, verses one through 21. And, and these are, let me warn you, two extremely familiar texts for most of us. We've probably heard of the feeding of the 5,000. And we've probably heard of Jesus walking on water. These are not unfamiliar texts. And for Nikki, she's hearing the second time this sermon. So it, it, it's a little different. But what we need to know is that these are the fourth and the fifth signs that John is giving us. And he's giving them to us for a purpose. But before we get there, I want to really show you where the connection between these two signs is. What we normally do is we preach this as like the feeding of the 5,000 in one sermon and walking on water in another. But if you look at the text in verse 16, we see when evening came, evening on the same day. So this is a one narrative that is split by a boat, a water crossing and a feeding. And evening is the tie together in verse 16. So I don't want us to think, oh boy, he's doing something new. No, this is how it's written. And the ESV nicely breaks it up for us and says, oh, this is two different things. But in reality, he's driving home, John is driving home the same point. So what is that point? And we're gonna get to that after we read the passage in its full context. So hear the word of the Lord. John 6, one through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards, toward him, Jesus asked, said to Philip, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered to him, 200 denarii, not eight months pay, Lord, would even give be a worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. The NIV says this really well, not even a bite, not even a bite, eight months pay. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they? What are these small loaves and fish for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. We know that this is um, just 5,000 men, heads of households. And we know this is a mixed company because there's already talked about the boy who had five loaves and two fish. So we can pretty much tell you, I can pretty much tell you by most of the commentators, this is like 20,000 people by every stretch of the imagination, maybe more because of the size of families in those days. But Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So that they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then 
that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea back to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them, almost as if they were expecting him to be there. And the sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. So I hope you saw that this is all really just one story, kind of just broken up by a paragraph marker in, in reality. Um, but it is really important to know where we were coming from. And chapter five is really important to the whole story of who Jesus is. And he, if you remember from last week, Travis brings out the fact that he um, literally said this, you, know, you could, to justify him working on the Sabbath, Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. Verse 17, verse 18, chapter five says, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And then he ups the ante and says, actually, you guys don't even know where my authority comes from because you don't believe Moses, who you don't even believe your own writings. Your own hope set in Moses is, you know, you don't understand it. And so how do you not understand those? If you're not gonna understand those, you definitely aren't gonna understand what I'm doing. He literally says in verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Setting up this, this um, conflict that we're gonna see played out in the next few chapters uh, with the Pharisees and the Jews. But more importantly that we see is, and we must not lose sight of, is that this is not just him proving something to the Jews, but he's proving something to us. He's proving something to us. And John kind of tells us, gives us this clue in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs, not in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, that, you, that by believing you and I may have life in his name. So we see that John's purpose is not to you know, show us that there's a lot of significance in five barley loaves and two fish. Now, while there is, and it is important that it is there, it is not his overall point. It is not the reality of the text. So he's bringing to us what is the reality of his book? What is the reality of chapter six, one through 21? It is that you might see in Jesus, you only have life. You do have no life apart from him. And that is my prayer today. That is John's prayer for us, that we, believer and unbeliever alike, for the unbeliever, see Jesus as your true need and rest in him, come to him. And as the unbeliever, continue to draw, to draw on him, deepen your desire for him and draw into deeper dependence in Jesus by reminding us who the Lord of glory is and what he has come to do. And as we come to John 6, as we get a little closer to this text, I see four 
different movements, four different sections, if you were. And verse, verse one to four is the first section and it really tells us our need. Verse five to nine tells us the test of faith. Verse 10 to 15 is Jesus's grace for the world. And verse 16 to 21, Jesus is God. Let me repeat that. Our need, the test of faith, Jesus's grace, and our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. But here the constant tenor, the constant like idea is that for us to do this, receive Jesus, receive Jesus without him, we have nothing because he is the only solution to our greatest need. Let me say it again, receive Jesus because he is the only solution to our greatest need. And as we come to verse one, we see verse one to four, our need. Jesus, this is the point of this little section, Jesus, not what he can give you, not what you think you can get from him is our greatest need. Jesus himself is our greatest need. And where we see this is the crowds. You really see this inside of the crowds. We see a large crowd was following him. Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs they saw the healings that he was doing and they thought to themselves, he might be, he might be the Messiah. We don't know. We're going to check this out. But let's see if we can get something from him because to be truthful, there were a ton of Messiahs running around at this time and none of them really lasted very long because the Romans, you know, they just put them to death because they were usually insurrectionists and anarchists and there weren't, they weren't trying to uh, save humanity and really they were just trying to take control. They were trying to usurp power. But that is exactly what these crowds are looking for. One who actually can usurp power. And we see this in verse 14. He says, this, look at verse 14. This is indeed the prophet who is to come in the world. They hear all and see all that Jesus does and think, yes, finally, we have a Messiah. He can deliver me from the Romans. He can feed my soul right now. But what they've done is they confuse what their actual need is. They've confused themselves. They've not really seen why Jesus has come. And I don't think we truly have seen why Jesus has come either, to be honest. The reality is, the reality is we typically get caught up like these crowds we get caught up in the hype. We get caught up in following, you know, this uh, whatever the next stream of, you know, popularity is. Even Christians, we, we have a tendency to do this and not focus on what our eternal need, but kind of catch whatever the, the needs that these crowds think that they're, you know, they think they need. But what we should be doing is following Jesus for who he is, the son of God, our, the true Messiah, not from the Romans, not from our governments, not from oppression, but from the oppression of sin and death that reigns over us if we are not found in him. And yet we get caught up in what we think is our need. We think that we have to eat. We think we have to sleep. And yes, we have to do all these things. We have to do them for the glory of God, but they are so immediate. They're so right here that we cannot confuse what is right in front of us for what is eternal because this is only met in the next moment. And if you live for the next moment, you will end up 
dying in the next moment and never really latching on to what is eternal and what matters the most. And it actually reveals, the crowd actually reveals, their, the way that they act towards Jesus reveals our deepest and darkest desires. They're not for Jesus typically. That we typically are like these crowds and follow the way of the crowds. But we need to see that Jesus is our greatest need. That Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our eternal souls. But yet we use Jesus, just like the crowd was trying to do, as a way to obtain those material things that are right in front of us. Isn't that true? We typically use Jesus, like I even, I even do this. And, it, and it's just, as I've been preparing for this sermon, reading this, this has really been impressed upon me that I have um, used Jesus improperly to set myself apart, to do things for me that would not necessarily you know, be God glorifying to say, I need a break. Beth, can you please take the kids? To, to say, because that's all for me, but it's not for the glory of God. It's not for my family. It's not for others. But I typically use that because I've been working really hard to lead his people. I need a break. And I know that some of my, my, my greatest friends have the same struggle that we keep seeing what we think our need is and not what our actual need is. And if we kept our eyes on Jesus, who is our greatest need, these things actually fall into place quite well because we're being faithful to see who he is and faithfully know who and what he is. So receive Jesus because he is our only solution for our greatest need. He's not, it's not what we can get from Jesus while that is great and that is glorious, but as Jesus alone, receiving him is your only eternal need and the one that will last past this moment. But even when we get that our need is Jesus, we have, typically have this problem of learning how to trust them more, learning how to grow in that. And so we see in verse five to nine, the test of faith that Jesus puts his disciples through and he puts us through every moment. Are we going to rely on Jesus or are we gonna rely on ourselves? The call of this part of the text is to rely on Jesus because he provides himself as the solution. And he comes, Jesus comes to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread? And he does it to test him. You guys notice that? He does it to test, what is, what is Philip going to say? What is Philip going to do with this question? Well, we're not, John's not doing this on accident. He's doing it on purpose. If we think back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the feeding of the 5,000, guess what he does? It's the disciples that come to Jesus and say, how are we gonna feed these people? John turns it on its head and he's doing it for a purpose. Remember back to verse 47, it said, but if you do not believe his, Moses's writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is taking the place of the greater Moses, the one who can actually lead his people out of their sin and into salvation forever and eternity. And he's setting us up to see this in a very tangible way. And he asked this question that is echoed from Numbers 10 or Numbers 11, where I am or where, yeah, where am I going to get meat for all these people? That's what Moses has asked. He says it faithlessly. He says it in anger. He says it um, um, 
angry at the people, angry at God. Why have you put me here? Why have you put me with these people? But Jesus says to test the faith of his own people, where are we gonna buy bread? To prove as we come through the text that he is the greater Moses, the one that can meet our greatest need. But Andrew brings and does something very similar to what Philip does. Philip's answer is 200 denarii aren't even gonna give these people a bite. 200 denarii as in eight months pay, as in a ton of money nowadays, if you think about it, wouldn't even give people a morsel. That's how many people there were. And that's how much, how insignificant he felt at that time. He fails the test though, because he looks at the problem, he looks at the need and he looks inwardly to try to solve it. Instead of seeing the Lord of glory standing next to him, he's healed a blind man who's changed water to wine. He's seen him basically destroy any like semblance of physics so far. And yet he is going to question and, and see, try to solve the problem himself. Andrew does the same thing. He says, five loaves and two fish, Lord. I, I got these, but I don't know what they're gonna do. And we come to Jesus with the same kind of questions. We come to Jesus when he says, go and do. We say, well, Lord, I'm only so much. I only got so much. I've only got, for me, it's not, for me specifically, I come to the Lord and say, Lord, you're gonna have to do all of this because I really don't have a brain that can focus long enough to be able to really look at your word and say, this is what it says. Because let's be honest, I've got a phone, I've got kids, I've got a wife, all of them I love, not my phone, that thing's from the devil. But I also have ministry and I've got all these things, but I need to be able to study your word to be able to preach it well. I need to be able to study your word to be able to sing it well. And yet I feel so inadequate. So I, I just don't, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do, Lord. The answer is rely on Jesus. Rely on him to carry you through the calling that he has on you, has for your life. But they like Moses and we like Moses turn inward when we come up to a problem. We come to a problem, we typically say, how am I gonna fix this? Not how is God gonna be glorified in this? How am I gonna fix this in my own way, in my own terms, on my own, for my own glory, my own pride? How am I gonna fix this? <laughs> and yet the Lord of glory resides in us. So, Christians are to rely on Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. Remembering what he has done, he has been provision. And what's crazy is that in this, Moses asked that question in Numbers 11. He asked that question after he's seen the Exodus happen. After he's seen God perform miracle after miracle after miracle to deliver them from oppression. And yet he still says, where am I going to get meat for all these people? Jesus is calling to us to look toward him. And when he asks the disciples the question, he, they, he expects them to ask him the same question in return. Well, I don't know, God. I don't know, Jesus, but you know. So please lead us, provide for us. So the question is, or when we come up to these obstacles, when we come to these things in our way, are we gonna desire what God has for us in his glory? Are we gonna believe on him that he has a greater plan from what we are seeing right in front of us? Or are we going to rely on ourselves and fall again and again and again, trying to satisfy a desire that 
actually is not even close to good. It's sinful that we might rely on ourselves, but yet we tend to do that every time. Let's ask this question instead. How is God working in this for his glory on the basis of who he is and not who I am? My strength is only as good as who God is. I have nothing, but God has everything at his disposal. He is the creator of all things. And he's about to prove it to us. He's about to prove it to his disciples. So rely on Jesus as he provides himself as the solution. And even though the disciples had Jesus, they still needed him to show him, show them his glory, show them who he really was. And that's what we're going to see from verse 10 on. Jesus's grace is beyond all, all measure in this next thing. He doesn't say, okay, so you go, you go try to figure that out. You go get those, you go get as many pieces of bread as you can or try to break this apart until you can feed as many people and then say, sorry guys. No, he takes over. Jesus takes over the situation to demonstrate his power and his all sufficiency for our daily needs, just like he is sufficient for our eternal needs. The disciples are really silent from this point on, just like we are when we do his work. Like Moses, he provides food, but he does it through his own power. And like Elijah in 2 Kings, where we get this barley, this barley loaves thing is really kind of important. Back in 2 Kings, Elisha does the same thing. He feeds the multitudes from some barley loaves. But this barley goes even further back. And we're told that the eternal rest for the people of God, we're told that the promised land itself is full and infinite amount of barley, overflowing with milk and honey. Barley and wheat abound. So God is, and John is showing us that he really is this true prophet, the one who is to come. And the people get it right. The people recognize this, that he is being, um, is fulfilling this prophetic um, word from Deuteronomy 18, 15, that a prophet like Moses is to come, but Jesus is greater than Moses. He faithfully blesses and provides, doesn't complain and moan. He's a greater Elisha and he feeds the multitudes without anything except for five loaves and two fish. And he only did that because that's what they brought him. He doesn't need those things. And when the people realize that they have been fed by the prophet that is to come, they try to make him king and comfort themselves with what they think they need. But we receive Jesus with thanksgiving and awe because he can provide for our needs here. He can provide for our needs eternally. And from greater to lesser, because he can provide eternal need for our eternal need for a savior from our sin, that we can look to him for our next breath. We can look to him for our next meal. But everyone encounters Jesus and initially makes the same mistake. What can I get from him? And when the atheist encounters him and says, there's no way I can get this from a man. There's no way I can get life from a man because they don't believe he's God. And when we come as believers, we tend to come to him and say, okay, Jesus, how are you gonna fix this? And not say, okay, Jesus, show me your glory as we walk through it. 
Those are a little bit different. One is a reception of things, reception of material satisfaction, and the other is trust and faith. We are not to confuse Jesus as a Pez dispenser or as a vending machine. As much as I love my Pez dispensers, as much as I love my straight sugar high, he is not that. He is the Lord of glory. He is the one that we need to see. But one thing we need to make sure we see in this text is in verse 11. He, Jesus, distributes the food. John points this out and he doesn't say the disciples distributed the food for him. But Jesus himself is credited for distributing the food. Now, I, you know, there's a miracle here or I, I'm not sure. The text is really ambiguous. Did Jesus actually go and give food to each 20,000 people? Probably not. Probably didn't snap his fingers and they just showed up because, yeah, that just sounds strange. Um, but I think he's credited with feeding the people because the disciples were being faithful in what they were given, the tasks they were given. They were being faithful in the task of feeding these people on Jesus' behalf. And so we encounter something like Feed the Bay. It's funny how this kind of works out. This weekend is Feed the Bay. That we see and we hope that the people who are fed by the food that we put in these trucks and are taken to the food pantries across Tampa Bay are not seeing, oh, what a great, Corey, what a great Jason, what a great Zida, what a great Katie, what a great, they're not saying that, they're saying what a great God I have. What a great savior he is, that he not only can provide for my eternal need, but he provides for my needs here and now. So we were to rely on Jesus because he graciously provides himself, graciously provides himself and guides us to him in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of what we think we need. So Jesus publicly reveals himself as the Messiah, like we said. They got it right. He is Messiah. But they were trying to use him for their own devices. So Jesus withdraws. It's not yet his time. Kind of hear this over and over and over before and over and over and over after this moment until he makes his march to Jerusalem. They get it wrong. And so he privately reveals himself to his disciples, the one who were need to know so that they might take the gospel and feed the people for him as best as they can. So we come to Jesus walking on water and I really want you to hear where this hits home. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He calls for us to receive him, receive Jesus. He is the only solution to our greatest need. The need that is eternal, the need that is now, is him, him, him alone because he alone is God. God himself is the one who tramples the waves of the sea, we're told in Job, Job, eight, Job 9, 8. We're also told this again in Psalm 77, that his way is on the water, yet his footprints are not seen. Isaiah 43, again, he is the one who travels on the sea, a path upon the mighty waters. The creator of the universe does, has no regard for physics because he rules it. 
He is the one that we can place our trust in because he ultimately can provide exactly what he's promising. They are afraid. They're frightened because they see a thing, a man, Jesus, walking on the sea, and they recognize, maybe recognize him. John doesn't tell us. And maybe you're thinking, wait, I remember in Matthew that Peter walks on the sea too. And he only does so as long as he doesn't look at the waves and he doesn't look around, but he looks and fix his eyes towards Jesus. And there's an object lesson for us. Rely on Jesus, receive him as your savior and he will take you to where he has promised. And where Moses needed God to hold and split the Red Sea back, where Joshua needed the river Jordan to be held back a mile up the river so that they might cross into the promised land. We are graciously guided and carried to the promised land ourselves by God himself when we rely on him to satisfy our eternal need for a savior. We, that plays itself out in what we rely on every day and every moment that we continually live in faith that Jesus is going to sustain us, that by his spirit, we are empowered to live for the next moment and live for him alone. So like the disciples, we need to receive Jesus and our lives and base our lives on him and him alone. Believer, believing on his promises of salvation because he alone provides himself on the cross for our sin so that we might have eternal life. Jesus proved himself to be the greater Moses, the greater Elisha, the one who walks on the sea, the living God Almighty. Are you, am I, relying on him for everything, including our eternal salvation? My call and his call and our call for now is to rely on him and glorify his name as almighty God, great deliverer and wonderful savior. Because Jesus is our need. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our savior and our God. And only he can bring it to fruition. Receive him today. He is the solution to your greatest need, to my greatest need, a savior.